Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Werman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call out west and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Tuesday morning. Hoping that we're getting closer and closer to restarts over in Europe. Still a lot of uncertainty there, but even more so here in the States. And a lot of that has to do with our structure and our system. And uh, coming up after the break, we're going to have Chris Kivlahan on the show. We're going to get into some of that uh, in in just a few minutes. Uh, looking at the landscape, we talked about it yesterday um, that uh, on on Friday, the, the U.S. Women's National Team case uh, hit a bump in the road, uh, and there was a summary judgment that went in favor of U.S. soccer, which uh, was not the outcome that they were hoping for, that many of us were hoping for, uh, looking at, at how the Federation operates in regards to the national team programs. And, and their, quite frankly, their lack of leadership in, in this arena. But it's, it's, it's been indicative of their poor leadership across the board. Um, and uh, as a result, the U.S. Women's National Team vowed to keep fighting. And uh, we talked a little bit yesterday about how Michelle Akers, uh, you know, tweeted and, and posted on Instagram as well, uh, talking about, you know, where we are in this country and, and American soccer and the landscape, etc. Um, we have some current U.S. Uh, national team players who have also uh, spoken up about this legal setback. Uh, both Alex Morgan as well as Megan Rapino have uh, both come out. These are the co-captains of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team um, saying that they were shocked after their team's claims for equal pay were dismissed by a court, um, but said that they have planned to appeal the decision and uh, this decision was out of left field for us, uh, said Alex Morgan, um, appearing on a remote live feed on the Good Morning America program on Monday. We are fighters and we will continue to fight together for this. Uh, Megan Rapino went on to say, if I earn $1 every time I play and a man earns $3 just because I win 10 games and he only wins three games, and so I make $10 and he makes $9, I'm not sure how that's make me making more money. Uh, that's a, that is a big element of this as well. You know, people have said, well, look at the amount of money. Look at the totals. But it's not uh, apples and, uh, to apples here. This is an apples and oranges because you have to look at rate of pay. That's part of why I have constantly said, don't call this an equal pay fight. This is an equal treatment fight. Uh, travel, accommodations, rate of pay, all of those things should be in the conversation about how our men's and women's national teams are handled by this federation. Um, you know, so looking at uh, looking at where we are, um, the U.S. Men's National Team Players Association um, have come out on yesterday and have reiterated their support as well for um, the the female players, uh, the U.S. Women's National Team players, and said this, for a year and a half, the U.S. Men's National Team players have made proposals to the Federation that would achieve equal pay for the U.S. Men's and Women's National Team players. Um, and, they have, and they have said, 
that we need, uh, you know, we need to to reach this level, this status. And this is uh, a situation where we're going to have to see how this progresses. We know that the appeal uh, is going to take place and is underway, but we don't know, you know, how much longer this is going to drag out. Some say months, some say it could take over a year. And uh, so we'll see how that continues. But the, the, the fact remains that the fight continues and, um, and, and it should. Looking at other aspects of the American soccer landscape, uh, it is clear that the current ecosystem that has been constructed by U.S. soccer is not serving the game very well. Uh, and we know this because... Uh, and we're going to get into to some specifics on this with Chris Kivelhan in just a few minutes, but uh, the, the the clubs in this country and the leagues in this country are operating with basically not just one hand tied behind their back, but they're operating uh, with a lot of disadvantages. And, and those disadvantages come into uh, the lack of diversified revenue streams, uh, being smart in scheduling, uh, being, being smart in how we structure our system. We're a massive continent-sized country. And, and the idea uh, with the cities as large as we have in this country that we have to have a national league that that is having to get on an airplane and fly from coast to coast to play matches when we have plenty of of cities in this country that can support first division football from a metro market size never mind the cities and communities that can be innovative and creative and and create great products on the field, great quality and excellence on the field and even smaller markets. This idea that we've got to, to, to have a team to be considered a, a top level team to have to travel from Los Angeles to Miami to New York to Seattle to out to, to even leave the borders of the country and go to Canada is is absurd. And, and, and that is another piece of this that our system has been so poorly constructed from a from a travel perspective that creates you know unnecessary expenses and it also deprives the fans and that's a big piece of that that the fans are not able to participate in a way that they would want to the way that we see around the world when when a team goes to play in a way fixture it's not realistic. It's not feasible that a big number of those fans are going to be able to get on flights and just fly and follow their team around the country. We've got to get smarter at how we do what we do. And I look forward to having uh, Chris Kivelhan on the show here in just a few minutes. And we're going to talk through a bunch of issues uh, in lower league soccer, in, in, including the scheduling, the pandemic, uh, and some of the other things um, that he is hearing uh, about what is going on in uh, lower levels of the game. So uh, that's coming up here in, in just a few minutes. Uh, another thing looking at where we are compared to overseas, as I mentioned, is revenue, but it's also uh, uh, affecting our restarts. Italy and, and Spain uh, and Germany are all having conversations as well as the UK about how can we, we get restarted? When can we get restarted? What are our protocols? How can we make this manageable and feasible? 
And the reason why they're able to have those conversations right now is that they have a, a multiple factored revenue stream. Uh, it, it comes from s- multiple sources, multiple streams. And, and what that allows them is some flexibility. Now, does that mean that they want to play behind closed doors? Absolutely not. Do clubs want to lose that revenue? Absolutely not. But for the integrity of the competition and for planning and calendar purposes, do they have more flexibility than if you have all of your eggs in one basket? Absolutely. And that's the disadvantage that we are seeing here in America as it relates to American soccer. We just don't have that flexibility built in. And uh, and I look forward to getting uh, up with Chris Kivlahan in just a few minutes to talk with him about some of these issues as well. But before we do, our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Learn more about them at Ductic Brand and in place an order when you do, use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of that order at ducticbrand.com. We'll be right back right after this. into the show thanks for tuning in today and uh, we are happy and delighted to welcome a friend of the show chris kivlikhan back to the show chris how are you this morning i'm doing great thanks for having me on thanks for coming on um you know lots changed since the last time we had you on the show last time we were talking a lot of you know nisa what could they do what they what should they do and and looking at you know the the lower league landscape of american soccer and we're going to get back into that again today but uh from a very different perspective as we're all dealing with the realities of this uh, global pandemic it has caused all kinds of issues and uh, uh just happy to have you on to kind of 
dig into some of these issues as uh, you're seeing and hearing uh, around the country. And, and also maybe you and I can do a little prognosticating on what could happen and, and what should happen uh, going forward. Uh, in terms of the, the pandemic, uh, it, it hit at a, at a really weird spot in the American soccer calendar. Um, it is, I think it was like two weekends into the Major League Soccer schedule. It was after the first weekend of the USL Championship schedule. A bunch of other leagues were either just kicking off or about to kick off or prepping for their uh, short season, you know, summer schedule like the NPSL and, and USL League 2 schedules uh, kicking off typically in May. And, um, you know, since March things got put on hold and then things got canceled and we've just got chaos all over the, uh, the American soccer landscape and especially um, a bunch of chaos. And, and I would even classify some of it as devastation at, in the lower league uh, uh, levels as well. Curious what your thoughts are on, uh, you know, where your head was at when this, you know, it, it was, was, just locking down that the country was just kind of going to lock down and leagues were starting to, you know, at, at first it was, you know, we're going to put on pause for a few days and then it turned into a few weeks, et cetera, et cetera. But in those first few days and weeks, what was kind of going through your mind? What were you looking at as, you know, potential hiccups or, or, you know, adjustments that were going to have to be made as the whole country and indeed the world was, uh, you know, dealing with uh, the pandemic in a, in a very real way. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that I was keeping a close eye on mainly from the perspective of, you know, just as like a small business owner who, who has, you know, employees that, you know, that are, that are my team members um, I was watching it because, you know, at a certain point you look at it and say, okay, this is, this is really blowing up, uh, you know, as it gets into late February and early March, it's like, okay, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to make adjustments to our business. Right. Um, and, you know, I've got to look out for these people, you know, who are, who are my, my team members um, and make sure I'm making the right decisions, you know, for, for everybody. Um, and, and, uh, you know, that, that I think is, is kind of analogous to what the business owners who own, uh, you know, these, these sports teams, whether they're pro lower league teams or, um, their, their adult amateur teams, you know, it's a, it's a business that they're running and you've got to try to try to make the right decisions for the people who, who work for you um, and for your community, uh, and uh, that kind of that kind of comes first, right? And then, and then, you know, how do you how do you adjust adjust the business and try to try to keep going uh, accordingly? So, uh, you know, it's harder for you know a professional sports team, uh, you know, than than uh, a lot of other businesses because they can't really operate, right? They can't have everybody work from home like I can for my business, right? Uh, I can just have my employees work from home. They can continue to do our jobs, right? Uh, it's not convenient. We don't have that team environment. Um, but, you know, 
on conversely, my employees are able to do their jobs and they're they're safe in their homes, right? Um, you just can't. You don't have that option as as the as as uh, you know a team member or an owner of a of a you know of a of a sports team. So um, it's I think it's just very devastating on on that industry in general uh, because a lot of these folks have made commitments financially with the expectation that there was going to be revenue to uh, to offset those and hopefully either either you know ideally. They make some money um, or break even or, or, you know, at least have a manageable uh, loss within a zone that they are comfortable with. Right. And that that really this whole thing has really thrown all that math off. So, you know, um, there's the one hand. Good news. People are doing the right things. They're, you know, they're they're putting everybody's health first, and, and that is important and necessary. But from the perspective of the businesses, uh, that you know that will what will be after um, you know I think it's it's probably gonna you know really hurt operations that might have already been struggling a bit financially. I think that's true of businesses in general, but you know this is one industry that I think is hit very hard. yeah, I agree um, when, when this started to kind of slow down and go into lockdown, uh, what were you hearing from clubs um, and leagues in terms of, you know, any kind of, of windows that they were looking at in terms of, hey, this is a doomsday scenario. We can afford this for X number of weeks or X number of months. But after that, like it, it could be catastrophic to our to our uh, endeavor. Uh, did you have any of those conversations? And if so, what were some of the comments or things that you were hearing in in that kind of March, early April window when this was all still, you know, I, I, I think at that point it was still very much a temporary mentality nationwide it, it, we had not even really gone full out lockdown uh, enough uh, in the early stages and and so this was really starting to kind of be like okay is this going to be a two to three week thing is it going to look like six weeks is it going to look like four weeks and now obviously uh, that began in March we're still uh, in this cycle here in May so it is it is obviously not let up um, so w- what were you hearing in those early stages about what was feasible what was manageable and what might uh, uh, potentially be fatal or, or at least deal a very very uh, uh, heavy blow in terms of either club operations or league operations, the further the thing uh, plays itself out. Yeah, I think, you know, some of the folks who I had spoken to in the early phases of this, um, you know, we're, we're really looking for a decision to be made. So if you want to put it back like a, like a month ago, um, you know, where we're a couple weeks into it, uh, you know, I think the, the MPSL, was the first league to pull the plug on its season. And that was actually something I was hearing from at least one MPSL owner um, who, you know, had, had some commitments that, you know, he, you know, he was going to be able to, uh, you know, not be able to, to uh, manage financially if the league didn't make a decision quickly about what was happening for that season. So to the NPSL's credit, they were they were the first league to uh, 
uh, at least National League that I'm aware of, to to actually make a call to to shut the season down, and you know that you know if owners were able to you know get out of uh, a commitment you know for you know, the, the venue right for example right venue rental you know if they if they could or at least manage a termination fee that is you know not going to be as painful right i think making a fast decision by the mpsl relative to the other leagues i think was helpful uh, at least to some of the owners who, who i had heard from um you know uh, and it makes sense to me just as a as a business owner that like you know knowing that you're going to make that call uh pretty quickly and then you can adjust to try to you know, make sure you're going to be around 2021 even if 2020 is not going to happen um i think is 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 uh, pretty important yeah and and you know whenever whenever that timeline started to to play out and um you know we we heard the PSL, they were they were very quick to pull the trigger, uh, and you know at the time I I was one who was a little, um, I guess skeptical of why would you pull the trigger so quick? Uh, we we had um, um, you know looking at the calendar, thinking okay, well you know if this thing played into April and then started to ease up, you could you could still look at a reality of the NPSL playing, even if it didn't start till the 1st of June. Uh, now, knowing where we are, and and knowing now that the USL League 2 has been announced as canceled, and, and so on and so forth, I think uh, the NPSL, um, you know, made a decision that uh, I don't think they're going to be... Um, upset with later on whereas when they made it i was like man there's a potential you know i mean we didn't know the timeline of opening the country up but i was like man there's a potential if this thing opens up and everybody else plays and you guys just preemptively you know a couple weeks in i i just thought it was there was a, a big risk to just saying we're done you know like give a two week window. We're going to reevaluate, let's say April 15th and then make a decision or put it off till May 1st, make a decision, whatever. Um, but I was like, you know, if this, if this thing does open up and in kind of a good scenario, right. And from a, from a health perspective for the country, they could have egg on their face for pulling the trigger so quickly and having, you know, things play out, uh, in, in a, in a good way, obviously seeing where we are now, it's been a much slower recovery and a slower reopening of the country. Many parts of the country still, um, observing lockdowns or at least reduced services, reduced, um, you know, uh, privileges to, to get outside or, and, and conduct normal, uh, business. So, I don't think they're going to have a situation now where they where they obviously were going to have egg could have had egg on their face. Uh, in the USL League Two canceling, um, you know, they're they're no longer kind of the standalone. NISA has now announced their spring portion of their season is canceled. Um, so, you know, we looking at where we are. I, I think seeing this cascade of events, uh, and you mentioned a very key point here that I think we need to get to, which is how these teams are constructed, whether they're professional or, or amateur, uh, 
neither team, neither situation, professional or amateur, has a revenue source that is independent of match days. If you can't host match days with normal operations, meaning butts and seats, cars in the parking lot, etc., then you you can't operate unless you're willing to just lose every opportunity for income. Like if you're just willing to go, Hey, I'm just going to write the check. I know it's going to cost me X amount of dollars and I'm not getting it back, but it is what it is because there's no, there's no TV money here. There's no real uh, commercial sponsorship revenue coming in here. There's no solidarity payments, training compensation money coming into the system. Everything, even in at major league soccer's uh, level is, is contingent upon from a revenue standpoint, the primary source of revenue is match days. And we're seeing how American soccer is more vulnerable than the rest of the world. When it comes to operations at the professional level, all the way down to the lowest levels of the pyramid, because all of our eggs have been put in one basket uh, by the uh, brilliant. And uh, this is completely laced with um, as much sarcasm as I can mother brilliant architects of the U S soccer system. So, um, you know, looking at the revenue side and the dependence on match days, um, how much do you think that uh, if affects the ability for leagues like the USL, NISA, and and in the future the NPSL and USL League Two to restart, knowing that match days are critical in terms of revenue for them to operate. Yeah, I think um, you know my 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 first concern would be, hey, let's make sure that you know any any clubs uh, are in a position to do the thing that's right for them, um, you know, to uh, to be around for hopefully a full year in 2021, right? So I think I think leagues should should consider um, not a one size fits all solution to uh you know to to their season for for whatever the remaining season may be if it makes sense for and like take usl for example which is you know they're they're not in the kind of spring fall split like nisa is um they they're they're batting around some format ideas there was a really interesting article by jeff reuter at the athletic um in conversation with Edwards from USL, you know, with some scenarios they're mapping out, right? Uh, I think for the USL, for NISA, for uh, any league that's going to try to play games later this year, maybe it makes sense to, to make it opt-in, right? Uh, if it makes more sense for a team, given their financial profile, to sit the year out uh, and come back in 2021, why not preserve that organization, which then will, in the long run, preserve more more jobs, right? Uh, and let them just take a take the rest of the year off. And then for the ones where it makes sense, you know, uh, to to play and they're there for the way that their expenses are structured or what their agenda is. Maybe they have a wealthy owner who doesn't really care about the money loss as much as others might uh, for a club that's really, you know, not as well-funded, right? Maybe they want to play and, like, let the teams that want to play play. 
right? And let the teams that want to take off, take off. Uh, structure something. You know, maybe it's a cup format. Maybe it's uh, a short season format. Something, you know, something for, for this year that's special, uh, given the, the fact that we're in a special time. And I hopefully U.S. soccer will not be an obstacle to that. I, I would hope that no one's that heartless uh, when it comes to pro league standards and that type of thing, right? Because the, the aim should, I think really should be how do we, how do we preserve things as much as we can for, for the future uh, versus trying to force something to happen this year that may, when we get to the fall, you know, hopefully we're all in a better place and the, the public health crisis is under better control than it is right now. And we're all comfortable going to, you know, entertainment events and, you know, and all that, you know, publicly. Um, but we might not be, right? So it's very possible that fall seasons will not happen, right? I know this sounds like sacrilege because you're in the Southeast, but college football is not a given this year, right? College football might not be able to happen, right? Um, I'm sure they'll do everything they can to make sure it will, but like at the end of the day, uh, people's health has to come first, right? Well, I, all I can tell you on the college football thing is um, that could be a start of a war, if uh, if they cancel college football in the South, the, everyone's going to wait on Nick Saban to rule, and whatever he says, you know they'll abide by. So, um, you know, we'll just have to we'll have to wait that one out. I I, I can't speak with any confidence uh, as to um, what might happen on the college football scenario. I can just tell you that um, the country better buckle up. <laughs> if, they, if they try to come in and say no uh, college football, it's uh, it's 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 a different animal, and uh, you know I don't I, I I don't know what would happen, uh, but I I would um, I would be I would be nervous for those who might make the cancellation decisions. Um, just you know it, it would be uh, it would be an <laughs> interesting thing to to watch play out um on, on the on the you know football front the 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 real football the soccer front okay. that we talk about um you know looking at the 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 major league soccer usl championship nwsl um you know nisa uh levels uh, of professional uh soccer in this country because of that dependence on match day and match day revenue, even if there were some owners that were willing to eat a loss and willing to operate, even if it was, you know, it reduced uh, revenue. Um, I still think from everything I'm hearing, and I'm curious to, as to what you're hearing on this front, I still think that there is a, a real hesitancy to make any firm uh, commitments to any schedule or dates until they know they can get butts in the seats in cars in the parking lot. Um, that, you know, the idea of 
playing behind closed doors, as we've uh, heard, uh, might be possibilities for restarts in Europe. It's just not um, a very likely reality um, in American soccer because there's there's just no revenue in that uh, formula and in that setup. Um, in, have you heard anything? In, in regards to that, like the the necessity for uh, people in the stands and, and cars in the parking lot before a restart can happen, which in my mind makes makes soccer um, in America a, a much slower process that could return uh, to the playing field than some other sports who could, you know, possibly entertain the idea of at least in an interim doing, uh, you know, operations behind closed doors. What what are your, um, you know, sources that you're talking to? What are you hearing from them in, re- in regards to that? Having to have full clearance to, to have people in the stands in order to restart uh, their leagues. Yeah, so, you know, I would just, I would throw an idea at you, at you there. So sometimes when we have situations that are crises or um, put constraints on us, right, other doors open, right, other opportunities emerge. So it was why I was, I was looking at Twitter, reading an article somewhere, and, um, you know, ESPN Plus is going to start airing the Korean baseball organization six nights a week. I saw that today on, on, uh, I forget exactly where I'm sure it was off my Twitter feed somewhere. Um, that's how starved people are for sports content right now. Right. Is I bet you people are going to watch it. Right. Uh, the NFL draft, I think had some type of crazy viewership, right. Just to even get that, that sort of not even real, real actual games, but like, um, something to watch, right. That, that, back into their passion, right? Um, so if you take a league like NISA, right, that has a fall season and, and it has no broadcast contract, it's not a very big league. I think the intent right now is to play with 10 teams, right? Um, could they get some type of one-off broadcast deal that would help float that, uh, that, that operation and make up for the, uh, the ticket sales? I don't know. But, you know, is there an opportunity to do something special for this year, right? I mean, maybe you have to, if you're USL, maybe you have to reposition it as a cup. Hey, we canceled the season, but we're going to do this cup, and the cup doesn't have a broadcast commitment, so we can sell the rights to it, right? Um, there, might be, there might be things like that, because I think, you know, I people on my Twitter feed are watching the Belarusian League, right? Just because they want to watch something. Right. <laughs> you know, so there's that opportunity. Uh, but, you know, it also has to, the situation has to be in hand enough that it's, it's not a risk to the health of the players and the staff, right? Even if you're going to do closed doors, you know, it's not worth it if, if, you know, it's going to cause devastation in the, the lives of the players and the staff. We, we can all be patient and wait, you know, another, another nine months to start in 2021. But, Assuming that type of thing's in hand, even if it's behind closed doors, maybe there can be some type of one-off um, TV deal, you know, or or some type of deal that creates creates funding uh, because there is a lot of pent-up demand. Absolutely, and um, you know, I think uh, looking at uh, the social media uh, posts and comments 
people are are not just longing for sports. I think they're obviously we're all longing to get back to somewhat uh, level of normalcy, and uh, and and for a lot of people, sports is a big part of that. Um, you know, one of the things that I I'm looking at in in the American soccer conversation. Uh, that I don't think has gotten enough attention yet is the opportunity. You you mentioned, you know, out of uh, these kind of situations, there can sometimes, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention uh, is a phrase. And I, I look at where we are, and this, this may be a, a very unique time, but a really good time uh, to, you know, say, hey, look, we're going to just completely restructure and let, let's get on the FIFA calendar. Let's fully engage. Let's take it, uh, you know, advantage of the fact that everything's kind of hit the pause button here and, um, and, and let's just regather and regroup so that, you know, our owners and everyone who are trying to figure out how do we make this thing fit? How do we make it work? How do we s- stay sustainable going forward, viable going forward? Um, you know, this idea of, of launching, uh, relaunching with a fall to spring calendar, which is what NISA kind of has in, in their fall and spring kind of separate seasons, which is really more of a, a remake of, of the old NASL uh, calendar, but it's still somewhat oriented in that way already. I, I think the USL at the championship league one level, as well as major league soccer, um, you know, could, could definitely take a look at just using the, these months as basically like, instead of lost months um, and, and trying to cram things in to get back into you know, a, a schedule of launching in February, March of, of 2021 for the 21 season, instead using this time to go, hey, let's, let's restructure our, our leagues so that we can figure out ways to fully engage the global marketplace in January as well as the primary market, which is in June, July, and August. Um, and, you know, uh, th- there there are people who, uh, you know, will say if they're up north, you know, there's just no way that you can do a, a fall to spring calendar. There's no way. Dude, they're already playing in, in the, the same months uh, that they're playing right now. The only, the only time that they haven't played is January and uh, – you know, I've been on record saying that the idea of, of a fall, uh, excuse me, a winter break like like the Bundesliga in Germany um, is a perfectly uh, uh, thought out scenario that that the Germans have have instituted with their league that we could easily adapt to our model. Um, so that we could, you know, honor those FIFA dates, honor the the transfer windows, fully engage, you know, kick off in early August, run into the beginning parts of December, take that that winter break, come back in February, and especially your leagues that are national, you can schedule around winter weather in February, March. MLS is already kicking off, you know, into February, early March anyway, so you're talking about a, a slight shift in, in schedule to get things properly aligned, uh, to me seems like a great opportunity to do it. Uh, I'm curious what you're hearing on that and what your thoughts are on finally getting all of professional soccer, not just NISA, but all of professional soccer properly aligned with our calendar. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a good example of the type of opportunity that that the situation you know presents, right? 
if you said, okay, hey, we're just going to restructure when the season happens. Um, you know, I, I have not heard anything that would indicate that, that that's happening. Uh, but I think, you know, it is a great example of, you know, looking at the situation and uh, being resourceful and using an unfortunate opportunity to maybe, you know, make improvements. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully, hopefully the uh, clubs and, and leagues are, are all, are all thinking in that direction uh, because, you know, there's always, you can always try to find the silver linings, right. And, and ways to improve uh, even in these situations you you're not fully in control of. When we uh, look at some of the, the things that, that hamper the development and progress in terms of quality ex, uh, excellence, access, opportunity um, in in lower league soccer up into the highest levels of professional soccer here in America. We also we, we often look to uh, the standards and the rules that kind of guide and shape that pathway or lack thereof for clubs in America. Uh, and that is the professional league standards that U S soccer has put out in those standards. Uh, there's a focus on, on, you know, how many, um, can fit in your stadium, you know, stadium capacities, time zone requirements, metro market size. And when you when you look at club viability, they have an extra clause in there about, uh, you know, how your ownership has to be structured in the United States of America, which to me is is absurd. It's actually one area where I think the NASL antitrust suit could get tossed out, that one provision. Um, I, I, I don't see U.S. soccer having not having the ability to say, hey, our first divisions must have, you know, 15,000 seat stadium capacity, etc. But I think to narrowly define how ownership can take place uh, in an organization, in a club, I think could be something that, that could be problematic in that lawsuit for U.S. soccer. Um, but what I really wanted to, to discuss for a second isn't just that clause, but a little bit broader discussion about what is not in our professional league standards. And that is a focus on multiple revenue streams that is worked into the calculations of club viability and league viability that all of the conversation is centered around. Do you have someone worth X millions of dollars? Okay. Well, we'll sign off on that. Never mind the fact that that person's net worth when they qualify to own a club may have vanished and evaporated overnight when the market crashed maybe maybe all of their money was in a certain stock and it's over when that that stock goes bankrupt and not just in the pandemic but maybe some other time you know just they put all their money in one place and now it's gone um it's just seems to me such a a really poor way to construct a set of standards to promote the growth uh, of the sport in this country, uh, especially now looking where we are in this pandemic, everything from a revenue perspective being singularly focused on match day revenue and not having these leagues required to, you know, it's, it's one thing to say you got to have a TV deal, which is in there, right? It says hey, you got to have something. You got to at least show your games on YouTube. We'll allow that to, to, to satisfy that you're putting your games somewhere, remote viewing, 
capable. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's another thing to say, look, you've got to show us as a league multiple streams of revenue for us to go, okay, this league is viable. Because we see around the world the solidarity payments, training compensation, the the transfer market, um, the the television revenues, the commercial and sponsorship revenues are all at levels so far and exceeding what we have here in the States. And to me, if, if you're the Federation in charge of growing the game, which they say they are, according to their own mission statement and bylaws, Shouldn't the Federation be ensuring that our professional leagues and I think even our amateur leagues are working on ways to connect together and also um, create more pathways of revenue and revenue streams for the clubs and the leagues? Um, curious what your thoughts are on on you know looking at where our professional league standards are in terms of club viability and in enforcing or making some type of uh, concerted focused effort on increasing the number of revenue streams, not just the overall revenue maybe that you're getting uh, looking at a match day uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it was interesting, right? Because I think this was put to the test uh, to a certain extent when um, Detroit city uh, was looking to, to become a professional team. Uh, because, you know, they basically had built a business that worked, right? Uh, at least at the level that they were at, and and, and worked worked very well uh, in that they were they were they were making money. They were putting, you know, a much larger budget together than than other NPSL teams. Um, you know, great crowds, passionate crowds, moving a lot of merchandise, right? Um, so they were they were they were having. A lot of success, but in order to become a professional team to the pro league standards, you need to, uh, you know, you need to have that person ten ten million dollars net worth to join uh, a division three league, and they have to own thirty five percent of the club. Um, so, in theory, these guys built this organization, uh, you know, up, and now they have to sell a piece of it to uh, somebody in order to check this box, right? Uh, that that. That I think was an example that sort of showed how fundamentally flawed you know the approach is because we're we're basically the system is designed around not being successful, right? Um, and so you had a club that that had built a a model that worked better, and they couldn't move to the next step the way that they were structured just because of the way the rules are. Right. So, um, you know, I think, I think the answer is probably in, in, in between, uh, where it's like, okay, you can have an investor of, of this net worth. Uh, I mean, I don't really think 10 million uh, is, is enough, frankly. Um, you know, these teams lose, you know, millions of dollars a year. So somebody's got a net worth of ten million dollars uh, is not going to be able to support a team as much as that sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. Um, these these teams lose a lot more money at an annual rate. That someone who's worth ten million net worth isn't going to be meeting the PLS standards for very long if they own a professional uh, lower league soccer team in the United States. Um, 
but you know, allow another pathway, right? Which is maybe the more healthy pathway that you want to you want to move towards over time, which is the Detroit City type of club. Hey, if you you know if you're able to show that you can actually like have a working business model um, that functions and it's you've got a track record, you can you don't need to bring in the 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 you know you need to sell thirty five percent of your organization uh, to uh, to a you know multi millionaire uh, just you know for the sake of it. Yeah, I I agree. The you know when I when I look at the the PLS as it specifically uh, refers to the the ownership uh, net worth pr- uh, provisions, I just think it's such a poor uh, metric. To, to throw your eggs in that basket. Now, look, if you're Rocco Camiso and you're worth $10 billion and you want to stake your personal fortune as why your club is viable, I'm fine with that. Like, mm-hmm. whatever. that That's your prerogative. If you're Detroit City and you're similar to an Ibar in Spain who is working their way up through the pyramid, they didn't have a multitude of investment dollars from the outside. They didn't have some wealthy owner that uh, like a Rocco Camiso that was backing the club, but they were in the black. They operated on a policy of not uh, having debt. Uh, and, and, and they had successfully on a sporting sporting merit provision uh, had su- su- uh, successfully worked their way up to um, the, the top level of La Liga in Spain and, and you know, were met with critics from within the Spanish Football Federation saying, look, you've got to show that, that you have debt, that you can handle debt. And we're like uh, Ibar was going, we, we don't operate that way. Like we've shown that we're, and so they were, they were able to, to do some things they had to do, uh, you know, raise some, some capital and do some things and, and we're able to do it. And they've stayed in, in the league. And uh, I think they've done really well since they've come into the league, but they're, they're kind of an example, uh, in Europe, similar to a Detroit city that's wanted to work their way up and, and has shown and proven their club viability. And for me as an American looking at American soccer, I have a real problem with saying there's only one way a club can prove viability. Yes, you can do it by saying I'm worth X amount of money. and I'm willing to stake my personal fortune uh, to back the viability provision doesn't mean I know the business that I'm in. Doesn't mean I know how to at least reduce my losses, if not, you know, uh, reach the black or, or turn a profit. Um, you know, I don't. I may not have any competency at all in the soccer space, but I'm willing to stake my personal fortune on it because of whatever reason, right? Vanity, uh, competitiveness, whatever. That's fine, and 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 and. That's good and well and all, and that's if that's what you want to do, that's great. It's America again. You do what you want. One of the things that that I uh, am baffled by is uh, not just a Detroit city who says, "Hey, we found a, a business model that works for us. We can show our viability. You know, let us play." But I'm baffled by by the specificity of the the net worth ownership to the point if I put an ownership group together that has people worth $10 million collectively it's a it's a hundred million dollar uh, net worth um, ownership group and they would be unqualified to own anything above a third division 
even though the collective ownership group would, would be worth $100 million, is another you know, piece of insanity. <laughs> so I'm looking at the, the way that, you know, these provisions, it's just not structured to a do a good job at the business you're in B find alternate ways to prove your club viability, whether that's personal net worth or, uh, your operations, your track record, as you mentioned. And, and so looking at this and looking at our, our big landscape, zooming back out to the beginning of our conversation here, the this pandemic has caused a lot of stress and pressure, uh, financial pressure, and that that is going beyond the club owners. That's hitting the coaching staffs. That's hitting the the operations staffs. That's hitting the players, the support teams around this, and all because the these entire organizations and these leagues have been built on one revenue model and one revenue stream, one ownership model, etc. And we've we've painted ourselves in su- into such a small, narrow uh, niche that you know any uh, upsetting of the current climate and ecosystem could be catastrophic for for quite a few clubs and leagues if this thing uh you know continues into the future for a very very long time so you know when i when i look at this and and see where we are i think that it it puts a lot of the onus and pressure on the federation to say look we may not be able to provide a stimulus check to every club in america we, we don't have the money. We can't do what what every club would love, right? We can't write every club a $100,000 check or a million-dollar check or a $10 million check or whatever. We, we just don't have that kind of money. But here's what we can do. And we're going to work with our leagues, professional, amateur, whatever, to find creative solutions, as you mentioned before, whether that's the temporary cups and television deals, restructuring of calendars, whatever. But if we had some leadership, some innovative leadership from the Federation on that front to say, hey, we realize we've painted ourselves and our and our entire ecosystem into a corner. Let's try to find some solutions to get out of this. I think we would be better off going forward, um, you know, Obviously, I'm not very optimistic of that because of the track record. Uh, but I, I do think it's worth the consideration that the Federation should be uh, taking this time themselves to rethink uh, how we do what we do in this country. So, Chris, I appreciate uh, you coming on the show and uh, sharing your thoughts on what you're hearing on on the lower leagues and, and your observations of where we are, where we could be going, and, and, and the possibilities there. Um, my last question for you uh, is this. Looking at where we are and putting on, you know, looking into the crystal ball and, and, and putting on your best prognosticator's hat, where do you think we are come September in terms of uh, restart of play? Are we? Do you think it's likely we see NISA get going? Uh, is it likely that the USL and MLS are playing? Or do you think this thing is going to be more catastrophic and everything just gets put, put off until 2021? Um, I mean, obviously, I think we all hope that... Uh, things return to normal sooner rather than later, uh, just on a human level. Uh, if I were to speculate just 
following the news like everybody else and looking at where we're at. You know, I think if we get to a point where testing is improved over where we're at right now, uh, where tests are plentiful enough that anyone can get a test uh, when they want to get a test, and that would include you know teams being able to test players. Uh, you know, at, a, at an appropriate rate, you know, before and after matches, um, maybe do the closed door model, right? I don't really think it's very likely that we're going to see, um, well, you know, well-attended events happening for the rest of the year. Um, you know, I think I think closed door would be would be great for us to all see. Um, you know, and and can there be other ways of of monetizing that? Uh, you know, because you're going to have more demand, you know, from people sitting at their homes uh, who want to watch something. Uh, so, I, I I think that's probably where it lands. Uh, you know, obviously it could be better, it could be worse, right? Um, you know, I think that the most important thing is for everybody to make decisions with the future in mind versus the immediate gratification of this year. Uh, let's try to, you know, try to make decisions around, you know, what what's going to be best for 2021. If that means, you know, that we don't get to enjoy entertainment uh, options that we would normally like to enjoy in for the rest of 2020. Uh, but, you know, it's better for public health and we get through this faster because of that. Um, then I, I personally... I'm personally of the mentality, if I have to stay inside for a little bit longer to know that we're going to come out of this and not have it come back and hit us just as hard and just hit a whole reset button and have to do it over again, I would rather be patient right now, you know? So um, that's kind of the way I look at it. And, you know, hopefully we have some breakthroughs. Hopefully there's a breakthrough treatment, right? Uh, a cure of some type that, you know, if you get this thing, you know, you know, you're not going to die. You're just going to get get sick for a couple of days and take the medicine, and and you'll be better. Like if there was something like that, even short of a vaccine, that happened sooner rather than later, that would be a game changer, right? I don't think the the drug that is being uh, mentioned in the news right now um, is is quite at that level. I think it just you know, it's some positive news. It shortens the the time, but I don't think it's quite at that level from what I've read. You know, if there's something that comes along that does a better job, maybe we can get back to business as usual quicker. Um, but you know, I think I think you got to take got to take people's health first, preserve what you can for 2021, and then we can all get back to back to it hopefully next year. I agree, and I hope uh, I hope that comes sooner rather than later. But I, as uh, you said so well right there, um, where we're all. Uh, in a good state of health uh, as well um, in, in doing so um, and being wise and smart about how we proceed. So Chris, look, I appreciate you coming on the show. I hope uh, these clubs and leagues take these opportunities to, to rethink and think outside the box, come up with some creative solutions. Uh, regardless, whenever we do come back, uh, there's going to be opportunities for innovators to innovate and do some cool things in the soccer space. And uh, I would love to see uh, that innovation take place here in the States um, and improve our game. So, Chris, appreciate your time uh, for coming on the show. We appreciate it as always. And uh, look forward to having you back on again soon. 
Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. That is Chris Kivlahan with Midfield Press. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the lives of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink and we will continue fighting until that happens. Big thanks to Chris Kivelhan for uh, coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for watching. As always, you can watch at DanielWorkman.com forward slash watch every weekday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.